0: If you are visiting with us again, we welcome you, and it is our common practice to go through books of the Bible verse by verse. And we are this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will be looking at verses 7 through 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 7 through 14. The title of my sermon this morning is, Flee from Idolatry. And your key words for the worshipers in training are, Idolatry, Grumble, and Temptation we're actually going to begin reading a little bit earlier uh, in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, verse 24, so we have the full context of what the Apostle Paul is writing here. So read with me, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, we, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If you remember here, the context of what Paul is writing in chapter 10 uh, is what he's been arguing from about chapter 8 on through, and that is about Christian liberty. And he's calling them now to fight or to contend for the faith with self-control. You see in verse 27 he says of himself, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. And then he goes on in the beginning of chapter 10, uh, verses 1 and following, he gives examples of how it was that the Israelites were disqualified. He shows in verses 1 through 4 the great blessings that they received in God. That they were covered by the cloud of God as they left Egypt, as they were traveling as God's people, And they came up to the Red Sea, and God, through Moses, parted the sea, and they walked across on dry land. And the walls of water were on their left and their right, and they got through and turned around in time to see God destroy the Egyptians who pursued them. And they moved forward, and God provided them spiritual food. He gave them manna from heaven. He gave them spiritual drink. He provided water from the rocks. And he says all along, the rock that pursued them, the rock that followed them, was Christ. And he tells of these great spiritual blessings. And then along the way, we see in verse 5, that nevertheless, with most of them, it's a very generous word he used. If We believe two to three million Israelites at this time. He says most of them were overthrown in the desert. What he means is all of them except for two. Caleb and Joshua were the only of that generation of the Israelites to enter into the promised land. God was not pleased with them, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And he gives us a warning in verse 6 and says, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And so he gives this example to tell us the Israelites stopped running the race faithfully. They distrusted God. They were disobedient to God. And they did not pursue Him as one who pursues this perishable wreath, knowing that they, as God's people, would receive an imperishable wreath. They were running aimlessly. They were beating the air. They were not disciplining their bodies and keeping themselves under control. And in the end were disqualified and overthrown. And so Paul is taking this example of the Israelites and placing it on the Corinthians because he sees that they are in grave danger of taking their liberties way too far. Instead of asking the questions that he said were very important and appropriate in terms of Christian liberty, asking, is it profitable? They were simply asking, is it permissible? Instead of asking, is it something I'm enslaved to? They simply ask, well, is it lawful? And Paul was saying, no, what needs to be asked is, is it profitable? Is it something that enslaves us? A very key element of our liberties is that we have the liberty to not partake in them. And he's calling them to be careful lest they fall like the Israelites. And so we see he continues on in his example with the Israelites and says in verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. So let's get the context of what he's talking about. If you would like, um, we're going to be around uh, in the book of Numbers mainly. But as he's talking about here, he's explaining... Perhaps the most ridiculous excuse that we see of something happening in the Bible. Remember, Moses went to Mount Sinai. He ascended the mountain and was receiving the law of God. Meanwhile, back on the ranch at the bottom of the mountain, the Israelites are getting restless. And they're saying, where's Moses? Where did he go? We need a God to worship. Aaron Gather up all the gold and fashion an idol for us. And so Aaron went to all the Israelites. He took their rings and their earrings and, and their jewelry and he put it all together. And then Moses comes back down. He sees them worshipping this golden idol. We read Exodus 32, verse 6. It says, They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And Moses saw this going on and he says, Aaron, what are you doing? What is going on? Well, I, I, just, I, just took, I just took everyone's gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Really? That's an amazing fire. And so they are hiding behind their lies and their excuses as to why they are worshiping a golden idol. And Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. A direct quote from Exodus 32, verse 6. And this phrase is a euphemism for sexual immorality. This is why he mentions that in verse 8. He's saying, they were letting their hair down in the absence of Moses. With two things going on. One, idolatrous dancing and offering being offered before this golden calf. Worshipping something that was created by the hands of man. By the very jewels that they were wearing only hours before. Bringing offerings and sacrifices to the cow. Secondly, we see... In this, it is implied there was sexual license being taken and it was approaching an absolute frenzy. Literally, what this is saying is that there was a burst of frenzied activity leading to sexual orgy. And we read about this in the hearts of man and Paul describes this um, in the book of Romans chapter 1 Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for this error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So we see the nature of man unchecked at play amongst the Israelites. Idol worship. It's seductive. It's alluring. It draws them in. And it is exactly why Paul targets this so forcefully with the Corinthian church. Because participation in idol worship could very easily destroy the Christian community in Corinth completely. And Paul saw this and he knew that this is what was going on amongst them and wanted to call them on it. Because they were walking dangerously close to this line. Right, We saw earlier that they were participating in Christian liberties without any wisdom applied whatsoever. And when we fail to apply the wisdom of God to every situation it very easily leads to unchecked sin with a lawless mentality. And so Corinthians were uh, were saying they were believers and then they found themselves present at pagan festivals participating in all that was going on and in the end simply said, "Well, I'm not I'm not worshiping this because of what it is, but I'm I'm just participating." I'm just a part of what's going on in my culture. And I'm free in Christ to do this. And Paul says, hold on a minute. Uh, Is that profitable? Are you going to become enslaved to that? And he uses the Israelites to show an example of how easy it is to fall into idolatry. Because unchecked liberty can and almost certainly always will lead to idolatry. In verse 8, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And so he's asking of the Corinthians, are you pure at heart? Are you pure in heart? He makes reference to another incident with the Israelites in Numbers chapter 25. Verses 1 through 9. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. While they were weeping in the entrance, of the tent of meeting. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up and left the congregation and took the spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by that plague were 24,000. And so he asks, are you pure at heart? Are you yoking yourself up to idols as the Israelites did? In that, are you giving yourself over to those things which they promote and call us to? Are you giving yourself over to the sexual immorality of that world? In verse 9, he asks them, are you seeking to put God at your service? In Numbers chapter 21, we see Israel doing this very same thing. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many the people of Israel died that day. So, they were released from slavery, receiving the blessing of God, leading them through the wilderness, putting them through the Red Sea, destroying the army who was pursuing them, giving them food from heaven day after day after day, Giving them water from the rock, and they said, This is worthless. We hate this food. Why did you take us out of Egypt where we were enslaved for the last 400 some years? And so they were calling out to God, We want you to serve and submit to us, to fulfill our wants and our desires. And we look at them and say, You people are ridiculous. But this is the God most of us want, right? Like the Israelites, we want to look at God and say, "I want to define who He is and what He does." And we don't use those words, but that is our heart. It comes out in saying things like, "I, I don't like to think of God that way." or... Well, God loves and forgives, so all is well. Or God's not really concerned about what I believe, He's just concerned that I do believe. And so we end up creating God in our own image and in our own likeness to act and to do and to provide and to please us as we desire. And so we walk on with. Very little reverence for God, not wanting His provision in the way that He provides, but wanting His provision in the way that our flesh desires. Not wanting to see His power displayed in the way He chooses to display His power, but rather wanting God to show His power in the ways that we ask of Him. And all of this is evidenced in the way that we as people grumble and murmur. He says in verse 10, do not grumble. Literally, he's saying that these are audible expressions of unwarranted dissatisfaction. You have no reason to be dissatisfied. Stop grumbling. We saw the grumbling of the Israelites. We see it in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt The cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So what did their grumbling lead to? Numbers 11, verse 31. The Lord gave them exactly what they desired. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on the side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp. And about two cubits above the ground. It's a lot of quail. And the people rose all the day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague." So essentially, they were saying to God, if you really loved us, you would give us something other than this manna. If you really wanted to provide for us, you would give us meat. They got their meat. They were also destroyed in the wilderness. So Paul here gives a series of commands. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters. Verse 8, do not engage in sexual immorality. Verse 9, do not put Christ to the test. Verse 10, do not grumble. Compare all of this, what Paul is saying here, to the self-control he speaks of in chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. Paul himself said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. You see the Israelites were in no way content with who God was and what he was doing for them, and likewise the Corinthians were in very grave danger of doing the very same. We're going to spend some time and see what does this idolatry look like because this is the root of all of this. The reformer Martin Luther in commenting on the 10 commandments he recognized that the first two commandments were related to idolatry. And the next eight commandments after that were things like sexual immorality and uh, the sin of sexual immorality, uh, lying, murdering, stealing, all of these things. But he observed from that, if you were able to keep the first two commandments, you wouldn't break any of the others, right? And this is good insight from Martin Luther. It is impossible that we as human beings in our sinful flesh would be able to fulfill the first two commandments of God. But the implications of this are critical for us. Maybe it is for you that you, you drink too much. Or that you're into some sort of, of drug. Or you can't help but lie or you have a violent temper or you're engaged in sexual immorality and perverse things perhaps you're materialistic or it's just on your you have to gossip about others or you're a workaholic because your job is most important to you we can look at all of these things but as we look at all of these things in our lives it's important to realize that These things, these individual sins are not the issue. These are not the issue. The issue is idolatry. See, we want to look at the sin in our lives like fruit on a bad tree. And a lot of us just say... Man, I just need to get that fruit off the tree and then the next crop that will come in will be better. And then it comes and it's bad and it's rotten again. So we take it off and it comes back and it's rotten again over and over and over. But the problem is you can't do that because the problem doesn't begin with the fruit. It begins in the roots. The root is idolatry. That's what Martin Luther was saying. That's what Paul is saying here. Not, he's not saying, don't get drunk, don't commit sexual sin, stop yelling at God, stop being frustrated with God, just stop it, just knock it off. You know better, stop it. Why is he not saying that? Because you can't, it's your nature. Because the root is rotten. And instead, he's saying, pay attention to idolatry in your life that leads to sin, because idolatry is the root. And so some of you are saying, well, I'm a believer in Christ, and so my nature is not sin. And I will say that I agree, but even for believers in Christ, idolatry is not one sin amongst many. Idolatry is the sin that is the foundation for all others. We sin because we idolize something. A philosopher named uh, Peter Kreft, he wrote this: "The opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry." And some of you may be saying to yourselves, as I say this right now, uh, I'm not an idolater, I'm an atheist." No, you're an idolater. You might worship your mind or your experience or your five senses or empirical scientific rationalism, but you're an idolater. You have given and devoted yourself to that as your God. And so we can look at the world and we can see all men everywhere are constantly worshiping something. But we have to ask the question, what is it? This is why missionaries go into the middle of jungles who have never been touched by any other people group in the world and we see them worshipping something. Be it the moon or the stars or the trees or each other or whatever it is, there is worship going on. And idolatry is really tricky because it's easy for us to see in others, right? It's very easy to sit back and look, uh, for example, at other cultures and to say, well, they're worshipping a statue carved out of wood. Or they're worshipping a golden statue of a man with a fat belly. That's silly. Or we look at people around us and say they worship their job. They worship their children. They worship their possessions. It is very difficult to turn that light on our own selves and discern in our own lives what we are worshiping as idols. But we are very prone to idolatry. We are a culture filled with idols. As I read through Romans chapter 1, he says in there that they worshiped animals and creatures and creeping things. And we can look at that and say, we don't worship animals. It's ridiculous. No, we may not worship animals, but we name our sports teams after them, and we spend billions of dollars on letting them consume countless hours of our time to entertain us. We don't worship the sun. Have you been to the beach? We don't worship the stars. Well, maybe not the ones in the sky, but the ones in Hollywood and on movie screens. Yeah, they may not look the same as they do in other cultures, but they are idols. And we worship them readily. I was listening to a sermon to prepare it for this morning. And he made reference to, um, to something that happened in the year 2000, the MTV Music Awards. A guy named Eminem, he was, this, uh, this, he was like, I guess, cool at the time. Um, and uh, everyone was listening to his music and, and MTV Music Awards, they had him come and perform. In the beginning of this segment, you see him out in the street with hundreds of boys lined up behind him, all looking exactly like him, dressed in white t-shirts, baggy blue jeans, bleach blonde hair, And then he bursts in the back doors into the auditorium and all of them follow in right behind him. All looking exactly like him. He was to them a God. They wanted to look like him. They wanted to be like him. They wanted to sing like him. They wanted to walk like him. They were worshiping him. Our culture is filled with idols. We even pull out all the stops sometimes and name a TV show after it, right? American Idol. There's a story of a missionary from America who went to India. And while there, he met a woman who was Indian, who once traveled to the United States of America. And she was a Christian and she said... I will never go back to the United States. I cannot stomach the idolatry. And he said, what do, you, what do you mean I'm in India? There's idols set up all over the place here. And she said, every American home I went into had an idol right in the middle of the living room. They organized their furniture around it. They organized their activities around it. They organized their conversations around it. What was she talking about? The TV. And so we're very quick to say, I'm not an idolater. What consumes our lives? Aldous Huxley and George Orwell both wrote books many years ago. And one of them said, the thing that will kill us is being enslaved by something that we hate. And the other one in his book responded and said, no... We're going to be enslaved by something we love. That will kill us. Idolatry is that very thing. Enslavement to something you love other than God. So how do we find those idols? How do we root them out? We must ask ourselves several questions. What do we long for most passionately? Is it food or alcohol or sex or new clothes or cigarettes or Facebook? What is our default thoughts when everything is quiet? When you lay down and there's no other sound, there's nothing else going on around you other than your mind. What does your mind default to? What motivates you the most? What drives you? This is the very thing that is going to be the perfect candidate for an idol in your life. Are you sad or depressed or unhappy or worn out on life and feeling alone? Well, could it be that you have idols in your life that will never truly satisfy you? For some, it's a complete lack of a true Savior altogether. And it's my joy to tell you that Jesus says, Come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He calls us to repent of the root of our sin, which is idolatry, and believe the gospel. But here's how idolatry works. It doesn't. It never, ever satisfies. So here's what it might look like. Ladies, this example's for you. Young ladies. He broke up with me. So now I live in, I was dumped hell. And then I go into single for the rest of my life hell. Which leads to, I need ice cream to comfort me, hell. Which leads to, now I ate all my ice cream and I'm fat, hell. Which leads to dieting, hell. Because in the end, all of these things we're running to, to say, this will satisfy, this will comfort, this will bring me joy, this will bring me out of my hell. And it just leads to more and more and more dissatisfaction. The hell is that you are worshipping and seeking satisfaction in everything other than the one true and living God revealed to us in the Son of Jesus Christ. Idolatry is a works-based religion. Do this and you'll get that. And it is in no way about grace. It's about being cooler or having more or being flashier or having bigger and getting better so you end up on the treadmill you feel like you can't slow down on or you'll end up on your face or through the back wall. It's religion and it is the worst treadmill you can be on in this life compared to the gospel which says your works mean nothing. You are saved by Jesus, not yourself. You don't clean yourself up so you can go up. (laughs) No, God saves you. God changes you. God transforms you. God restores you and through you is restoring all things back to Himself. He doesn't say, fix yourself and then I'll love you. He says, no. I will fix you because I love you. And you will have a desire to walk in obedience, away from idolatry. And so in all of this, he gives us an exhortation in verse 12. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In verse 11, he just gave us this instruction that we have the blessing of an example in the Israelites. And now he says in verse 12, Take heed lest you fall. Israel was certain of their standing, right? We're God's people. All will go well. Nothing will happen to us. But what happened? They fell. They were smug. They were self satisfied. They were grumbling. They were putting God to the test. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The more self-dependence we have, the less God-dependence we have. The more carelessness in our lives, the more temptation that enters our lives. And the more temptation we have in our lives our resistance to sin is reduced. And it is when we feel most secure, when we feel most spiritually strong in our lives, when we feel like our doctrine is at its soundest, our morals are at their purest, is when we are to be most on guard and most dependent on God. We must write, verse 12, on our hearts. Take heed, lest you fall. So if this is the case, though, how do we have any sense of assurance in our lives? The Puritans used to talk about two types of assurance. The first was resting in God's promises which is a true confidence to stand against sin and Satan, not depending on our works, but a confidence in Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection and the persevering of the believer because of Him. Resting in God's promises is recognizing our weaknesses and our fears and our need for the Spirit of God. The other type of assurance that we often has is if, is a confidence in nonchalance. We're boasting in our gifts and our works and use those as a means of righteousness, and the result is that we're opened up to Satan's attacks. And really, what's going on in our self confidence is that we lack a theology of wretchedness. It is vital. It is absolutely crucial for us as believers to understand how sinful and prone to evil we are as people. That we might have restored confidence and assurance in Christ who has accomplished great things on our behalf. Are you self-satisfied? Paul is saying, come now, run as those who win the prize. He's addressing fatheads here, (laughs) people who have confidence in man and not God. And so he ends with a great encouragement to verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He says two things here, and we'll be done. First, he says, there is nothing new under the sun. All that comes to you is standard stuff, no matter what it is. Your flesh and blood can endure it by the grace of God. Why? Because, number two, God is faithful. He will not allow temptation in our lives beyond our ability to respond. Jesus understands testing and temptation in our lives, right? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says, "For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Hebrews 4:15, "For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." And so that's a testing type of temptation, but there's another type. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes in chapter 1, verse 13 of the book of James, Let no man say when tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So where does it come from? James says in verse 14, Each person is tempted when lured and enticed by what? What? His own desires. Friends, temptation begins in our own hearts. It's always an inside job and it leads to death. But there is a way to be free from idolatry. God has provided a way in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we don't go over temptation. We don't go around temptation. We don't go under temptation. We go through temptation. And in Christ, we are able to endure temptation onto victory. Not because of what we are doing and accomplishing, but because of what Christ has done and already accomplished on our behalf. Ultimately, how do we keep from temptation? We rest in Christ so that we can do, verse 14, flee from idolatry. Identify the idols of our heart. Repent of those idols and turn and run and don't look back. The Christian life is a lifetime of identifying idols and repenting and believing the gospel again and again and again. Reminding ourselves that we're not loved because of whatever. I'm loved and I'm accepted and I can endure because of Christ. And it is because of Him that I can turn away from idols and resist temptation. And walk in the newness of life as He builds into me a life of repentance and joy in the gospel. As I remind myself of it every single Day, And so the Apostle Paul exhorts us, and I, you and myself as well, exhort us, do not succumb to idolatry. Flee from idolatry. We need each other to do that. Let us love one another enough to confront idolatry in our lives, that we may flee from it and take joy in the only satisfying thing, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time of instruction from your word. We pray, God, that you would bless us and fill us with hope in Christ that we not flee to idols in this world. Father, help us to be responsible in our liberties. That we not reject them completely because they might lead to something that we not want because we want to be legalistic about it, Father, but that we ask questions. Is it profitable? Will I become enslaved to it? Is this a means to glorify God? Help us, Lord, to be wise and to walk in the gray areas of this Christian life with wisdom and discernment and joy in knowing that Christ Jesus is our Lord and frees us from the enslavement to idols that we might walk and live and find joy and peace in our lives because we have hope beyond all hope. We have the one true God who can truly satisfy Not because of anything we've done or will do or can accomplish, but because of what Christ has done, is doing, and will continue to do on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our temptation, that we can depend on and lean on and turn to, that we would be delivered with victory from our temptation. You are good and gracious, and we thank you. For your faithfulness to us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.